welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hello, and welcome back to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. My guest today is Dilip Chandrasekharan of Canthal, recently promoted to Head of Business Development for the Global Steel segment and previously Head of R&D and Technology for several years. Welcome, Dilip. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be in this podcast. Well, it's a fascinating segment because industrial heat is such a major consumer of fossil fuels today and a major source, hence, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, uh, Canthal and you are directly aligned with electrifying that entire segment, which is a massive value proposition. And most people don't think about it. You know, I'm kind of working my way through all the decarbonization, hard to decarbonize things. And I've kind of arrived at heat, as so many people eventually do. And I'm really pleased to be able to speak with you today. But let's start with you. I mean, you've got this long history in industrial heat. So so tell us how you got to the point where you're kind of leading a massive portion of a global firm that does this stuff. Yeah, it's it's a it's a long story or what you would say, but I, I mean I my background is actually material science. So so uh, I, I joined I mean I studied because I was passionate about material science and engineering and to understand how materials behave in different atmospheres, how to design them and so on. That was kind of my training and education, my university background from the Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden. And I also worked in the steel industry, you know, developing materials and alloys. That's my original background. And then I joined Cantal after my PhD some almost 20 years ago. And for me, at that time, it was a new area, electric heating, resistance heating. I had hardly heard about it before. So that was my, my kind of introduction there where you could use the materials, you put current in them, and then you heat it up the, the process you want, both in terms of, I mean, it could be industrial heating, but also in your house appliances. But, but of course, the last, I would say, five, six, 10 years, maybe, this has grown more and more because we, we have our niche and we've been working with it, but now it's become such a big part of what's happening around the world as a term of you know, how to address the issue of replacing fossil fuels. And, and then this plays a bigger and bigger role. So I think my background and fascination is more, it's, it's, it's innovation and material science, and then solving these kind of problems. That's sort of my driver. And that's what Cantal fits in, I think. It's the whole company is based on, a, on this alloy, which is, which is basically a material that can, that's used even today to, to heat things, the iron chrome aluminum material. So that's, that's the basis for the whole company. And, and the, Founded on, on on to replace other kind of heating technologies in the in, for a long time ago, uh, uh, ninety years ago actually. So we are very much at our core. But the the what the difference now is that sort of the world is changing in a way that we are suddenly becoming much more uh, relevant. I mean, I think about eighty percent of the heating market is is fossil fuel, fuel seventy five, eighty to eighty five, whatever, and only fifteen twenty percent is electrically heated. Uh, I mean, in the past. And that has to change now quite a big way going forward if we have to overcome some of the challenges we have ahead with not burning fossil fuels. So I think that the combine sort of the basic materials with application technology and 
and customer know-how. That's that's what of what's been the, our core and what's driving me as well. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't been aware of Cantal, you know, until you know various combinations brought us together. But you know, even a couple of weeks ago, I was you know somebody who represents a global infrastructure, sorry, an Australian infrastructure fund who's looking to decarbonize industrial heat reached out. I was looking and you have, you know, obviously your Swedish firm, but you have sales offices and representatives in Australia. You know, I think that's quite probably exactly on the other side of the world. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how many countries do you op- does Cantal operate in? I mean, we have sales operatives, I think, I don't know how many countries, but but mostly, most I would say most part of the world. I think Africa is not, uh, is not well covered and, and uh, we're not that active in South America, but otherwise the rest of the world, we have more or less everywhere. We have sales representatives. And then we actually have production or operation units, maybe in five or six or seven different countries. So in the US, in, in Asia, in Japan, in India, in Europe, of course. And also we have um, you know, product and application development in, on several sites. So we are, for a small company, we are, we are very global in, in our reach, I would say. And that, this has been a part of a DNA from the start. It's it's uh, we are very globalized already from the start, so we have a, a wide outreach. So uh, I know that I know that you, you sent that link, and I, I heard of that before. So I was aware of that Australian company as well. But no, but but that, that's one of our strengths. I think that we are quite global, although we're originated from Sweden. I mean, the main production site is Sweden. The R and D is kind of originated from Sweden, but we are very global in our in our uh, over the years. We acquired companies and so on. So we expanded quite a lot the past. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you kind of touched on the global heat market. You'd said kind of 85%, 80 to 85% is from fossil fuels. But do you have a kind of a, a sense for how big a percentage of the consumption of fossil fuels that represents or how much CO2 comes from that kind of heat? That's a good question. No, I don't know if I have a, have a number. I mean, I, I've seen numbers like, you know, when you talk about the total CO2 emissions, Transportation, industrial, and so on, and, and and I mean a big part of that is the heating part, the industrial heating, the industrial uh, CO2 emissions, because you, you take all these processes like steel, cement, petrochemical, mineral processing, all of these industries require heating processes in one way or another. And and today I would say maybe ninety percent of those are are gas or fossil heated. It's very few of those that are electrically heated, and and that's partly because uh, I mean. I mean, abundance of gas, it's been cheap, available, large power needed, uh, I mean, energy intensity needed, and that's kind of made it easy to use gas burners and other kind of uh, in the past. So I, I would, I don't have an exact number, but I think a large part of the industrial heating part of the emissions is actually connected to the heating part. Industrial emissions, I'm, if I say that. Yeah, well, you know, I look at some processes like the Solvay process, which makes uh, bicarbonates. It was invented by a guy named Solvay in Germany. Big surprise. And, you know, the Solvay company still exists. And there's still a, and there's a town in northeastern, northeastern United States called Solvay, which is, an, you know, a United States Superfund site because it's such a toxic waste dump. And the Solvay process was invented around 1870 or so. And it, you know, has, it's a four-step process. You know, it's got ammonia in one place. And probably in the 1870s, they were using coal for the heat portion. And they're using river water to cool down in another section. But one of the interesting things about industrial heat, for me, is just the entropy associated with most of it just kind of evaporating into the atmosphere that's unused. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, you spend a lot of time in electrification. So how much, as you talk with clients, how much of it is reusing heat from your perspective and how much of it is insulation and how much of it is, you know, trying to avoid that rejected energy through, you know, all those techniques, but also, you know, how much of it is just replacing heat for heat and not worrying about the rest. I mean, there's an interesting balancing act there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, that's we, we're, we're in the discussion almost every day and, and just going heat for transferring, replacing heat for heat is not really a, a great idea. I mean, it doesn't really work that way in, in a sense because you all, often have other issues you want to solve. If we take a typical kind of gas heated application in the steel industry, they have, it's quite en- non-energy efficient or, or what do you call that? It's, it's very inefficient way of heating. You, you heat the atmosphere, you heat the air around it, because you have a gas burner basically just, just blowing, you know, burning things in an open open ladle. Most of the heat is you're heating the actual the, the the surroundings. It's noisy. It's 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 large. If you look at the just the energy needed, it's large amount of energy you need nominally. But what's actually going into the the, the process is a very small part. So and so I think there are a lot of things to do. You can do to kind of you need to kind of re design a new solution that will take away some of these things. And that's actually a more radical shift. Just replacing the burner with the heating solution, partly we're doing that. That's usually not so so efficient and so effective, but that's kind of the easiest way in because for a, for a end user customer, it's for them, they won't just take away the gas burner and put something else and leave everything untouched. But probably will not be a very good solution because you will have all the other, and this is back to what you said before, maybe you have to rethink the whole way to do things. Should we actually do it like this? Now we're kind of sitting in, we're doing things the, the way we did because we did them, we've done them for hundred years and it's been optimized. But if we had to redesign it, would we do it in the same way? Maybe we don't have to have it standing up. Maybe we can lying down or maybe we can, I mean, there are so many things we can suddenly open up. But so I think that, that it's a combination of both replacing the actual energy, of course, but also more efficient. I mean, direct the heat where you want it. Try to take care of the excess heat that you're losing and so on. We're not that much involved in in those parts of of you know re- reharvesting and energy efficiency, but but of course some of our solutions by using a, a smart insulation and heating technology you can save much a lot of energy. So you need less energy from the start to heat something. So replacing something that's 100 kilowatts, you only need 50 kilowatt electric energy because most of it will be in the process. So by that you you you, you reduce the amount of energy needed for that process. In many cases that you can actually make an argument for that. But that needs a little bit of a rethink. It just, you can't just take one but one-to-one replacement, then you will not get that. And that's, of course, the challenge we're facing, that it's sometimes hard to have that discussion. I mean, you can't come there and say, okay, we want to design a new plant, and then it will work. You need to prove it there at the existing site. So it's, I think many of these challenges are like that, because what you said before about processes, cement, steel, these are more than hundreds of years old processes. They're totally optimized today to be as efficient as possible. So it's very hard to make them more efficient in the existing process, I think. So what you need to do is then to kind of have another process that is, you know, uses the new technology, but then you need to redesign it. And that's a much bigger shift is technology shifts. So that's what makes this more challenging and also more, more interesting, but more difficult as well. Yeah. When I was talking to um, an Italian investment fund representative about industrial heat, we talked about, um, you know, kind of four categories of headwinds to transformation of heating in the industry. 
and you know you and I chatted a bit about them. But one of the big ones is just it's capital expense intensive to change a big plant. Uh, the number I have at hand is a cement plant, for example, is just a single uh, kiln and uh, cement uh, cement clinker uh, roller is about five hundred million bucks, hmm. and that runs on pretty much on natural gas these days. You know, baking the limestone to create quick lime, mm-hmm. and then putting it in with the clay into the big thing with a you know ten meter long jet of natural yep. gas on the inside, yep. and so you know that is highly optimized for natural gas, and it's hard to replace. Now, th- yep. this actually gets into a, another point to make is there's different kinds of heat. You know, there's lower quality heat which is used in some place, but you need higher quality heat in specific temperatures. You know, what, what's your perspective on how you differentiate lower quality heat versus higher quality heat in industrial plants? I mean, how do you, what kind of conversations do you end up having around that? So if, if I understand right, lower quality heat, is that lower temperatures or more diffuse yeah. heat? Or Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we try to focus on, on the, I mean, there are different discussions. What, one common misconception that, that people have is that they believe that electric heating or resistance heating, as we, we are offering, that you can't go above 1,000 degrees. It, it really okay. won't work. The thing is a limitation there in temperature. And, and that's very, it's hard to understand where that came from, but, but it's, it's often I hear that, oh, no, no, you can't use your heaters. We, can, we have several of your heat systems, but, and then, and then I, we tell them that, you know, we have actually materials that can last up to 2,000 degrees. You can heat up mm-hmm. to 1,500, and they're not aware of that. So there's apparently some kind of a misconception between temperature and actually the energy density needed. So I think there, mm-hmm. it's confusion that you need a lot of energy, that means high temperature. And that's why you can't use uh, electric heating, which are two different things. I mean, mm-hmm. the energy in, you need a lot of energy for to heat a, a, a product or whatever a process. That I understand, that's a challenge. And then you need to reach certain temperature because you have to have a process that has to work at whatever. And those are a little bit two different things. And of course they can be co- connected, but, but I mean, so we try to focus on those kind of higher temperature range. So typically five, 600 degrees and above, we don't try to focus on the lower range because there are a lot of other also electrically heated solutions that are available that are more commercial and more off the shelf. And then we, it's rather, it's more cost efficient to actually utilize those than that we design some kind of a customized heater for those cases. We have some of those, but, but I mean, another aspect could be that you want to heat something quickly. So, it's not so high temperature, but you want to have a lot of energy input in a short time. And then electric heating could also be interesting because then you can actually you know, run the process faster or, or yeah, whatever, even the temperature is quite low. So we have different kinds of discussions with, with different uh, companies and industries. But one thing that we're into today is that reach high temperatures and also the amount of energy needed, the actual kilowatts needed is a challenge that people face. Like you said, a gas burner. That's maybe like five or 10 megawatts, whatever. Okay, how do we replace that? Exactly that heat input, something else. Maybe you don't need that much heat because if you do it differently, you could probably reduce the amount of heat, but still that's a challenge. And that's uh, the energy intensity is what we see is discussion we have quite often. How much energy per square centimeter or square meter can we replace the existing system with? Yeah, a couple of things to pull apart from that. I mean, the um, the... I'm trying to think of the most polite way to say this. I, I would say myth, disinformation means something that you know, electricity can't provide high temperature heat is pervasive. I ran across it most recently. I was um, assessing the 
uh, U.S. Department of Energy's hydrogen strategy. And it was actually in there. It said, you know, if you need heat above 300 degrees, you need something to burn and hydrogen will do that. I was thinking that is remarkable because mm -hmm. I, I look at electric arc steel mini mills mm -hmm. and those go easily from 1500 to 3000 degrees Celsius. And you've got a, got a resistance heating technology that goes up to 2,000 degrees Celsius. These are, and, and you know, I'll just look at aluminum smelting. Mm -hmm. Aluminum smelting is an electric process yep. with very high temperatures. That's been around for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's like look for a hydro dam with a big, somewhere near there, there'll probably be an aluminum smelter sucking as much energy out of it as it can. Mm -hmm. And so it's perplexing to me. Do you have any insights as to why that? myth persists? No, I, I've also thought quite a lot about that. I mean, there are, the, the fact that there aren't, there aren't any big scale installations or, 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 or applications where, where electric heating is used is one thing. I mean, people can't see it somewhere. So if you can't see it, it doesn't exist, sort of, because we haven't developed those solutions. And they haven't been developed because the alternative gas was much cheaper and easier. So we went for that. Mm -hmm. And so we never looked at this uh, in a way. That's one, maybe one, maybe an explanation as well. And then, I mean, otherwise it's hard to understand why it's such a, what's connected, why, why this connection with, with high temperature and you can't use electric heat. I mean, maybe, maybe it's hard to understand exactly what the reason for that is, but I think maybe that it's not, it doesn't exist today. So you don't think that it's, it's possible because you assume that, okay, if it's possible, it would exist, it would have you know, things around that, but the alternatives have been much cheaper and easier. So yeah. people have gone there in the, in, in the sort, I mean, we, we, I can just take an example in our own production plant. I mean, we at Canta, we tried to have, of course, electrified our own process. We have mainly our own heaters, our own, but, and I'm working with our production to change some of this. We still have some gas burners because we haven't found, but we actually had electric heat from the start because we were Cantal. And then for some reason, 20 years ago, because of gas price or whatever, there was investment that replaced that with gas burners. <laughs> and now we're going back full cycle to kind of convert them again. Yeah. So apparently for that, at that time, we knew about all materials, but even we decided to go for a gas heat solution in some case, for whatever reason, if it if it's was a financial reason or, or whatever, and couldn't really solve it. So, I mean, if we can't do it ourselves and prove it ourselves and have our own, I mean, then you can't expect the rest of the people don't know this. And I've talked to our colleagues in, in other, because we're part of a big steel, uh, steel um, corporation and their processes, even there it persists that, Oh, but you know, you can't go up higher. I heard that just last week. And I've talked to steel industry in Sweden in their roadmap. And even there, although we talked to them, it still says that for higher temperatures, you need to use something else. And hydrogen burning is, is expressed even there, although people are learning more and more, but it's still very, it's very hard to break this in a way because it's so um, kind of persistent. I'm not sure why, but that's how it is. Yeah, it, there's three or four things that I, you know, it occurred to me. I, I spent a lot of time talking to cognitive scientists about why people are think weird. You know, they, we do. Mm -hmm. We're we're not 100% rational unless we really work at it. Our brains are lazy. I'm not sure you've ever read uh, Daniel Kahneman's yeah. Thinking yeah, Fast and Slow. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, great yeah. book. Really, I strongly yeah, recommend book. it. And, yeah. and as I, I love his forward, which just says, this won't help you think better, but it'll help you identify when other people are thinking poorly so you can fix help each other be better yeah because yeah. we just are we're, we're so we're so often blind to our own cognitive biases yeah um, i mean i mean the, the, the tricky thing there is that book is of course it makes sense but the hard thing is actually actually try to you know take that yourself and try to think twice and not jump into conclusions and be very quick 
but yeah, it's it's very very true that that's how we act as humans. Yeah, and so there's a couple that I you know there's there's three or four biases that I see all the time. I mean, you know, a couple of weeks ago I got the uh, wonderful opportunity to speak to actually a fellow Swede or a fellow Scandinavian anyway, Bent Fluvbjerg, who's a mega projects expert and has got a book coming out and he included a bit of my stuff on a natural experiment in China that was very interesting. But the context there we were talking about was, you know, he's actually in Kahneman's book. He collaborated with Kahneman. So the planning fallacy and the outside view stuff mm-hmm. in Kahneman's book was based on his work with uh, Fluebjerg. But the one that's interesting to me from the way people perceive industrial heat, there's a couple or three things there. Well, first one is just confirmation bias. They assume that they, you know, I, I, the way I articulate it is I'm burning something to create heat today. What am I going to burn tomorrow? Hmm. And they just, that's their paradigm that they're in. They're not thinking of energy. They're thinking of fuel, hmm. right? And so they just keep looking for the fuel replacement because that's what they're looking for. And so they kind of move forward and then they keep finding fuel replacement arguments from the hydrogen types and the synthetic fuel types. And so they keep leaning into those things because they keep hearing just enough to keep their their bias for burning something alive. So that's kind of thing one. The next one is something I talked to, um, you know, uh, John Cook, who's the founder of the site Skeptical Science, another cognitive scientist. He he kind of spends his time trying to help people inoculate themselves against bad thinking and logical fallacies. Um, he was doing that for climate change, and then he did it for COVID, you know. But when we when we talked. He said there's a, something that was really interesting is we were talking about tribalism and how the group you are in strongly reinforces and establishes what you believe. Mm. You know, it's not so much what's rational. It's what do the people around me think. Therefore, I'm going to think the same thing. And, and I was thinking about that in terms of industrial heat. And I'm thinking the people who work in industrial heat are surrounded by people who are burning stuff to create heat. And they're supplied by their major suppliers, the people who take them out for steak dinners or, mm. you know, Lutfisk or, you know, Activit mm. or whatever, mm. are people who sell them gas uh, today. And so, you know, I think about supplier relationships and, you know, I've been in a lot of situations globally where, uh, you know, client comes in to their supplier, me, and says, I've got this problem. And because I worked for a major tech company, I'd be looking for a way, you know, a solution set that was based upon what my company sold. Hmm. And so that tribalism confirms it, but then is a vested interest from the fossil fuel industry to keep suggesting other things to burn. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah. of course, blue hydrogen being the solution the fossil fuel industry would love everybody to take. So it's kind of all this interesting cognitive bubble. Well, have you, have you, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time talking to people who burn stuff trying to convince them what what what's your perspective on all that no i mean i think i think you're right i think that it's 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 very hard in the kind of value chain you are in today to change things because it would it, you have to kind of disrupt the whole setup the way of thinking that, i mean everything has been changed and looked into it becomes much more complicated and much more difficult so it's you'd rather not go there in a way i mean it's okay but this will in my, we need to change the whole setup we need to rebuild okay then sort of that 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 is by itself a barrier uh, and then there's so much to win. People have so much to win in the uh, to gain in this value chain. Uh, so to keep it kind of intact is good for them. To to change it, then you take a risk. I mean, you might it might not work. You might not be the supplier. You might not you know 
something else has come in. We don't know these areas. And that I think is also in a way not good for business. People want to keep it steady and stable, you know what you get. And the easiest thing is, okay, we have, the, we have our infrastructure set up. We just plug in a new fuel instead of the, and the gas burner and then that will lower our, our emissions. That's a very easy way forward. I mean, I understand that. Everything else can be same. You can be flexible. That's the best solution for them. I mean, in the short term, because everything else is harder. But I mean, I we I think that companies uh, and people and where they have kind of taken a more visionary or a long-term stand that we're going this direction, uh, no matter what. We need to change this, and we need to look, you know, at all solutions. There you get the different kind of. Then you open up these discussions. But if you say that okay, we're going the direction, but don't change anything. Keep it like today and. You know, deliver everything like today, then we are sort of stuck. But some companies have kind of said, okay, no, we want to go in a different direction and we need to look at new solutions. Then that opens up the, the kind of dialogue. But I mean, then somebody has, to, somebody has to go out there and you know show the way and kind of take the risk and maybe not succeed. So I think that it's a very conservative business, I would say, even in, with, with in our, our, our customers, our furnace builders, they're very conservative. They don't want to make any changes. So it, it's very hard to change things i mean one one other one other reflection from my side is that it, it's a very the business is very customized in a way so it's like you can't really i mean normally you would think that it, well, it works here it could work there and, and and that should be the case but in many cases they would argue that no you know it's, it's a different furnace it won't work there there's a different case your solution here is not proven there so it's it's very customized conservative business so to make these kind of changes you need somebody else to work with. You need somebody to actually believe in that as themselves and then convince the... So in many cases, the end user or, or the field company or whatever, they are the ones that are convinced or, or push this. And then they push their supplier saying that we want to have an electric solution, not the one that you usually come up with. And then the normal furnace builder, they're like, oh, but we don't have that. We never worked with it. We need to find a... They're completely, you know, but they will not propose it themselves. They mm-hmm. just want to kind of give what the customer wants. So the end user has to pull, pull that in that direction, I think. And that's, so it, you have to change several steps to kind of get that because it will be a, you can't just change one thing. It's very seldom you can just pull out and pull in a new heater, I think. Oh yeah, it's, it, it's, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, if, you know, to your point, if a major customer says we have to decarbonize, they have to st- come with the statement and we have to decarbonize with electricity, in order for it to work. And yeah. so there's a, tr- a transformational value stuff. Like, yeah, that's, that's, no, that's and, a And then challenge. another thing, another thing, what you said, I mean, sometimes you don't really understand what the drivers are. Who is driving what? Because there's a big debate in Sweden, especially about hydrogen. And I, I read, I've seen that you've written quite a lot about hydrogen. And burning hydrogen is something that people are proposing quite a lot in Sweden as a way to heat processes. And I mean, I haven't done the detailed calculations, but for me, it's, it sounds, you know, you take some, you, you have a very little electric power. You use that to do electrolysis to get hydrogen. Then you take the hydrogen with poor efficiency and burn it to create heat. I mean, because of what? Because there's infrastructure there intact or because there's somebody in the background that wants to push this? I don't know. It's a little bit hard to understand the drivers here because from a physics point of view, if you just make the energy balances and so on, it doesn't really add up to me. And I mean, of course, hydrogen is, is a, we need hydrogen because it's going to be a fantastic um, source of energy storage, maybe. And in some of the processes like steel and others, they will be used in the reaction to replace coal, carbon. Then it makes perfect sense. 
but they use it mainly only as a burner to burn that. I mean, I think we should we should we for me it's we we suspend our money or energy on other things rather, but that still prevails. And I think that a little bit back to what you're saying, I don't fully understand what the value arguments and what what alliances or what kind of um, you know connections there are there that support this. Maybe there are things that we don't I don't we don't understand. Why should this be so good in a way? And people are pushing this. Uh, I, I think there's more behind this that it's it's hard to break down in a way. And maybe there's some vested interests in in these different parts. So people have their own agendas in a way. So it's it's. I mean, I think we will need all all kind of innovations and all kind of ways to generate electric power to solve solve the climate issue. So we can't you know close doors, but we need to kind of be smart here and try to focus on the right what we think will lead forward and not into dead ends, so to say. Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of math on the, the hydrogen. I've spoken to a lot of experts like Paul Martin, who you know, builds hmm. uh, modular chemical processing plants. And when Paul and I talk about it, he says, you know, he builds for clients, right? He's like, builds, you know, as and he makes the modules as big as possible and they're manufacturable, you know, they, but they get set up as 12. All the way through the process, he uses electric heat until they get to the, in the prototyping and testing phase, until they get to the point where it's the economic argument and the only argument that switches to natural gas is the economic one, because everything else can be done in all the processes he does, except with a, and he doesn't do ceramics. Ceramics need kind of a weird heat. I understand. And so the operational expense is something I leaned into. So when I was looking at cement a few years ago, because I was like, hmm, what do you do? wow, that's an awful lot of energy. What's the equivalent energy in kilowatt hours just on a one-for-one basis? Oh, even if electricity is really cheap, it's still more expensive per BTU for that application. And as you say, you 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 can make the applications 50% less consuming of energy, but that still leaves a bit of a gap. But hydrogen is a weird one because every unit of electricity turns into you know, three units of electricity turn into one unit of hydrogen hmm. and then you burn it and you waste a bunch of it, hmm. right? So you're throwing away a lot of efficiency. You're still maintaining that 100%, yeah, you know, instead of the 50% of less energy if you electrify, you're still using 100% of the energy. So it's like three, oh no, it's, you know, hmm. four and a half times more expensive. So when I look at the cost of, so I did a bunch of stuff with Northern Africa because Europe wants a bunch of hydrogen from Northern Africa, which I think is a terrible idea for Northern Africa unless they can exploit all this stuff to get a lot of electricity and mm. transmission and green hydrogen for ammonia manufacturing. But when I did the math, green hydrogen requires firmed electricity because electrolyzer facilities are major capital costs. You can't run them on intermittent energy on intermittent electricity. You need electricity 24 7 365 or at least a significant percentage of that to balance out the capital costs this is a capex versus opex optimization yeah, curve yeah and so that means it's going to be fairly expensive and that turns into you know grid electricity prices when you spend that stuff and so then you kind of multiply that out and it turns out that green hydrogen is about 10 times as expensive per unit of energy as natural gas when you kind of go through that process you kind of look at that and go, okay, so we're going to replace natural gas with something that's 10 times as expensive. 
And to your point, that doesn't make any economic sense. And yet there's this persistence around this. You can see it as a bridge. You can see it as a bridge for maybe a couple of years as a CapEx thing goes, but the replacement has to be direct electricity. Yeah. I mean, I I can understand if there's no other option. I mean, you have a process or whatever. You can't find out a solution. And the only way to reduce CO2 then is to use hydrogen. Then, of course, it becomes a different kind of equation. But the, the option should be to use everything else. And then if there's no other option, and the other thing is, you know, we're going to talk about hydrogen for making steel, hydrogen for different processes, hydrogen to fuel cars or trucks. There's going to be a lot of shortage or, or demand for hydrogen. And then in that sense, to kind of burn it inefficiently, is, it's hard. I, I think it will come quite low down in my in a value order. The other thing should go before that. So, I mean, of course, then it depends how one interesting, one interesting kind of debate or discussion that's ongoing in the fossil-free steel part is that is it 100% fossil free or is it kind of 50% or is it what? And I was in a few discussions around that. And, and I mean, that's by itself a bit difficult because companies that are 100% fossil free, they won't keep that. But the big part of the steel world will not be that. So they were talking about some kind of a, you know, some kind of CO2 number that will allow them to still, then they can maybe use gray hydrogen or, 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 or whatever, blue hydrogen, whatever, and still sort of, be able to sell to the same standards and so on. And, and that's going to be very interesting to see what that, that goes because in the end, as a, as a customer or, or as a, we as consumers, you want to know what you're buying. I mean, you're buying a car that's fossil free. You want to know that it actually is the case. Not that it's kind of a, you know, partly uh, fossil free and some things are not. Then I think it, there's a risk that we will kind of devaluate, devalue this part because it's, it's, it's kind of makes everything kind of gray in a, in a way. You don't know actually what your, so uh, the hydrogen debate is interesting, but, but uh, like we come back to what you said before, what are the drivers and who's, maybe it's good to ask who's driving the agenda, what's their you know, drivers, why are they in this? Is it purely of um, you know, ideological thing for, for mankind or is something else behind it? Or what's, uh, it's good to ask those questions sometimes. That what... Uh, I, I have an opinion, and I, I'm just—I like to quote Michael Liebrich on this. So he's the guy who founded Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and you know, represented Britain in their ski team, believe it or not, at mm-hmm. the Olympics once. Okay, you know, I discovered that about him not too long ago. But he he says, and I'll paraphrase: the fossil fuel industry can't lose if we spend a bunch of time trying to turn hydrogen into a store and carrier of energy. They either defer real climate action through electrification of everything that is possible and thus persist with selling fossil fuels for longer, or they actually make us do this stupidity and they all of a sudden, the only remotely cost-effective option is blue hydrogen because blue hydrogen, even with carbon capture and sequestration, still is going to be cheaper than green hydrogen, you know, for those fossil fuel reserves. Outside of you know, outside of you know, like the European energy crisis you've been living through for the past several months, where natural gas prices have shot through the roof, and you know now hydrogen people are saying, "Well, green hydrogen is cheaper than that. Uh, well, you can't afford that." No, no, and we don't want to be in this situation for a long time. This is very much, yeah, other reasons, but yeah. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.
if you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thank you.